Well, good morning. It certainly is a pleasure to gather together this morning. For those that may not know me, <clears throat> excuse me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here with Christ Covenant Fellowship. I want to thank you all for gathering here together this morning. Um, hey, just a reminder, I know for some of you that may have been coming for a couple of weeks, maybe you've missed uh, one of our uh, sermons in the series on Amos, and always check out our Spotify page. You can catch up on whatever you have missed there. The Christ Covenant uh, Fellowship Spotify page has all of our sermons from the past, so if you want to go back and maybe check that out, I would encourage you to do so to catch up on what you may have missed. <clears throat> Listen, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to Amos chapter 5. In the last several weeks, we've been covering this prophecy here given to God's people through his prophet Amos. Today, we will look at chapter 5, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 15 today. So what I want to do is simply read these texts and then pray and ask God for his assistance during this time. <clears throat> Amos 5, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who... Turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and, darkness the, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may not live, or that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Let us pray. 
<clears throat> Heavenly Father, I have an incredible task before me this morning, one that I am not qualified or capable of completing. God, I could never speak to the glory that you deserve. Father, I am just a man who is limited in his abilities. So, Father, I am begging, I am pleading with you for your spirit to intervene during this time, to be at work in and through me as we open this text together. God, I ask that you would help me to teach from this text, to exhort from this text, but also to uh, encourage through these verses this morning. And God, I pray that in it all, you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> we all have standards. Standards for who we date, who we marry, standards for the homes that we buy, for the vehicles that we purchase, for the clothes that we wear, for even the foods that we eat. You see, what comes with having standards, though, is a certain level of expectation. We expect things to be a particular way, don't we? We expect them to meet our desires, to meet a certain level in our lives. And here's the thing about standards and expectations. We're often not willing to compromise on them. I want you to take, for example, maybe your favorite restaurant, maybe your favorite dining establishment. You love it because the service is always wonderful and the atmosphere is always so very inviting and the food is always tremendous. And you've grown to expect that. So if you go and you visit said restaurant and maybe the service is terrible and the atmosphere is just, it's loud, it's messy, it's not what it normally would be and you finally get your food and it is just terrible, you'd be upset with that. You'd be turned off by that and rightfully so because you've grown to have a certain expectation and you're unwilling to compromise on that. Well, here's the reality. God has a standard as well. He has a level of expectation for his people. And he, too, is unwilling to compromise on that. As those who bear the name of God, as those who are privileged by his presence, we should live in a particular fashion according to God's holy standard. We're called to conduct ourselves in such a way that God's glory and splendor are demonstrated to all of creation. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be holy as God is holy. But here's the issue, what we find here in Amos chapter 5. Although God calls his people to live a life of holiness and purity. The nation of Israel had turned away from God. They were no longer living in accordance to what he demanded. Instead, they had become a nation that was marked by corruption, sin, greed, and injustice. See, they had broken their covenant with the Lord God. As God's chosen people, this group, this uh, nation that God had saved and set apart for his glory and his good pleasure, they had tainted their worship by their behavior. Their hearts had gone astray. They were openly practicing and continuing in sin. Therefore, the offerings that they presented to God were very displeasing to him. They were actually an offense to God. To think about this nation continuing to enter into their places of worship, knowing the life that they were living, actively engaging 
in sin with no remorse, no repentance, not even the slightest inkling to turn away from the way that they were living. Man, this is hypocrisy in the highest form. And they had provoked God to anger. You see, throughout the study of Amos, we have been consistently reminded that God is a righteous and just judge. And as such, he must punish sin. See, our sin requires judgment. That's simply God acting in his divine nature. As we look at the text before us today, what we will see is not simply God's judgment on display, but we also see a great display of God's grace extended to his people. You see, weaved within this prophetic narrative is a gracious invitation that God extends to the nation of Israel. He offers them an opportunity to repent, to turn back to him and avoid the judgment and the devastation that is to come. You see, this section of Amos chapter 5 has some several themes that are repeated, that are woven into this text, and the themes are judgment, repentance, and sin. But what we'll find as we work through these verses is right in the middle, there's a unique section, verses 8 and 9, that kind of feels like a break, but it is a central and important theme to what we discuss this morning. And I believe that through these texts, God has a lot to say to us, and he wants to challenge us this morning through these verses. So let's begin. We'll walk through these uh, a little bit at a time. We'll take moments to make some applications, but let's look at this, this text overall. Let's begin by looking at verses one through three. And this is what it says. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred, and that which went out a hundred shall be left ten to the house of Israel. So what we see is this first section begins with lament over the house of Israel. You see, the Lord has placed a funeral song in the mouth of his prophets. And this is what's known as a dirge or a song for the dead, a funeral song. And this song represents deep and tremendous grieving and sorrow. It expresses lament over the nation of Israel, over the death of a young woman, specifically the maiden Israel, who had turned from her beloved, the one who had loved her and cared for her and delivered her constantly and continuously, the one who had saved her for himself. Israel had turned away from her betrothed. See, verse 2 refers to nation or Israel as virgin Israel. And this metaphor is significant when you consider the sanctity of marriage in that day and time, if you consider the culture and the society at that time and what marriage actually meant. You see, a young woman would be betrothed to her future husband and her purity was required. It was to be upheld until the marriage was consummated. And this was non-negotiable. This is why it was such a problem when Mary became pregnant uh, by the Holy Spirit during her engagement to Joseph. It was such a big deal. That's why he decided to try to divorce her quietly. So again, I don't want you to miss what this is representing. We have to understand what this means. And this again indicates the expectation for those in covenant with the Lord to maintain purity and holiness as those that have been betrothed to him as the bride of Christ, 
It's what the Lord demands. This shouldn't even be a question. There should be no controversy here. This is not up for debate. God's people are to live obediently in accordance to God's word. Period. End of discussion. You need a couple of verses, right? I got a couple for you. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. That's Deuteronomy 11.1. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those are the words of Christ Jesus. That reminds us this call to obedience isn't exclusive to the nation of Israel. It's all those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord. Right? Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. That's Romans 1.5. So if you have faith in Christ Jesus, if you are claiming to follow the Lord, obedience should follow you as well. We know what God demands of his people. But again, the nation of Israel had turned from him and fallen into sin. And as a result, there is great sorrow and grieving over God's people. Verse 2 says that Israel has fallen uh, no more to rise, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. And here is the nation of Israel enjoying the prime, a prime time of life, right? It's very prosperous. Things are going so well under the reign of Jeroboam II. They were in a very prosperous period. Now I want you to picture, for, for if you would, this illustration, right, this metaphor for Israel as this fallen young lady lying forsaken on her land, abandoned by God and all of her uh, allies cut down in the prime of her life to rise no more. Listen to that phrase, to rise no more. That is a stark reminder to us that God's judgment is permanent. It is permanent. And friends, that is a terrifying reality. Right? As we remember this, what we read in these verses, that this is a funeral song. Right? Well, the reminder to each of us is that death is coming for all of us. We all shall have a funeral song one day. There's going to be a moment where I'm laying at the front of the church in a casket and someone's going to be singing a song for me and someone will say a few kind words. And guess what? That's going to be a reality for every single one of us, that death is coming. And for every person, every man, woman and child outside of Christ, you will face judgment. There is a guilty verdict that will be rendered. And that judgment is permanent. It's permanent. That's why we stand here every Sunday and preach the word of God so faithfully and so passionately in hopes that God would work in the hearts that those are far from him now, those who have rebelled against him continuously. Our hope is that as we preach this word, you would repent and believe. And in that day of judgment, you would stand on the right side of God's justice, that you would repent, believe, and be saved. And I hope that there are some in here today that are already starting to wrestle with these things. I pray for God's conviction. I pray for the quickening of the Spirit. That's the reason that we preach. That's the reason God sent Amos, the prophet, to his people. It's to lead them to repentance. That's the desire. That's the goal of this message. Unfortunately unfortunately for the nation of Israel, 
the Lord had purposed their destruction. As we get to verse 3, that would manifest specifically through a military defeat. Verse 3 says this, For thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. You see, under Jeroboam's reign, the nation of Israel was marked by great military prowess. See, Israel prided themselves in their victorious armies. But here God warns of a literal decimation that is coming. Notice the correlation of these numbers here, right? It says there's a thousand, then the thousand will be left to a hundred, and then that hundred will only be left to ten. See, this is a literal decimation. In fact, this is where we get the word decimation. Think about the word deca. It means ten. So decimation was a a Roman practice, right? So this is what they would do. They would line up their entire Roman military, a group of soldiers, for any act of insubordination, cowardice, treason, failure, and they would line them all up, and every tenth soldier they would execute. So they would eliminate 10% of their army. But I want you to see what God says here. He isn't removing a tenth of Israel's army. He's only going to leave a tenth of Israel's army. Only one out of every 10 soldiers that goes out to battle will actually return home. This is a picture of utter and complete devastation. This is defeat and destruction on a monumental level. And this would be the fate of God's people. So this is the reason for the lament and the song of sorrow placed into the prophet's mouth. But although this is a reality, although God's judgment certainly is coming, there is hope. There's an opportunity to escape the calamity that is about to befall Israel. And the only hope that God's people have to flee from his wrath and his judgment is by simply turning back to him. It's turning back to him. Let's look at verse 4. It says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and Live. Seek me and live. See, amongst or amidst this pronouncement of judgment upon his people, the Lord graciously extends them an invitation to seek him and live. And what an incredible demonstration of God's divine patience. And can we just pause for a minute right here and thank God for his divine patience? Amen. Maybe that's lost upon you this morning, but if you're a Christian in here this morning and you think back to all the days that you rebelled and you spit in the face of God and you lived in your sin and you turned from him, but he didn't leave you where you at, man, praise God for that grace and that patience that was displayed to you over and over and over again until you finally turned to God. And that's a personal reflection for me. That's my story because I ran from the Lord and I rebelled for him for 33 years before I surrendered my life to Christ, before he did the work of turning my heart towards him. And I know how I lived, and he could have left me and destined me for destruction, but he didn't. Praise God for his grace and his patience. Praise God for his grace and his patience. Listen, this should be an encouragement to anyone in this room this morning. If you're in here and you're bearing the weight of your sin, maybe you're confronted daily with your shortcomings. Maybe you're aware of how far away from God that you are. If you're aware of your sin and your rebellion, and God is patient. If you're sitting in this room today and you have breath in your lungs and you have a sound mind, that's an opportunity to repent, believe the gospel, and be saved. 
And that's God exercising his grace and patience to you today to allow you to sit in here, to listen to his word proclaimed, and to turn to him and be saved. That's an extension of his patience and his grace. But here's the thing. That patience is meant to lead you to repentance. That's why God's been patient with his people. That's why he sends Amos to them to proclaim the judgment that is to come in hopes that they would repent. Romans 2.4 says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's the purpose of his grace and his patience. It's the reason for this message to the Israelites. This prophecy is a word that's sent to God's people and hope that they would turn to him. And although God is indeed patient, we must be mindful that his patience, as Israel would soon find out, is not promised forever. It is not promised forever. Isaiah 55, 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. See, for the nation of Israel, the future looked bleak. This wasn't a promising forecast to them, all, but all hope had not been lost. The Lord says, seek me and live. And this is not simply a call to eternal life, although that certainly is a reality for those that are in relationship with the living God, with creator God. But this is an invitation to life in direct contrast to what we see depicted in verses 2 and 3. See, God's anger burns against the nation, but he's saying, turn to me so that you are not consumed by my wrath and judgment. Seek me so that you live. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from your idolatry, your greed, your unrighteousness, and turn again to the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, this is undeniably a call to repentance for the people of God, before they do anything else, before they offer any more sacrifices, before they visit any temples, before they put on any holy feasts, they are first to turn their hearts to God and to seek him with genuine affection and get this, humble obedience, 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 obedience. That's what God's calling them to. And while this is God specifically addressing his covenant people, again, the command to repent is for all those who claim to be in relationship with God. That's for everyone in this room that claims to be a Christian. That's not just part of the old covenant. Even if you're in covenant relationship because you're under the grace of Jesus Christ, you are called to obedience as well. Jesus says there's verses like Mark 1.15, verses like Matthew 4.17. Jesus clearly tells all who would follow him to repent, to repent. So don't think this is a call that's exclusive for the Israelites. We are called to repent as well. The Lord gives them this command. He says, seek me, right? But he also gives them clear instructions of what not to seek, what not to do. Verse 5 says this, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Now, for the Israelites, they may have been a little bit confused by this. I'm sure they didn't understand exactly what God was saying to them here, for they had worshipped at these places for generations. 
This was a regular place of worship for the nation of Israel. These sites had historical significance amongst that, amongst that nation. If you think about Gilgal, we find the history of Gilgal in Joshua chapter 4. See, after the Lord had delivered the Israelites through the Jordan River, right, as they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, he tells Joshua, have some men grab 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel and set up this monument to remember and to commemorate what the Lord has done for you on this day. Right then, if you think about Bethel, we found, Bethel, we find that in Genesis 12. Abram, who would later be named Abraham, after being called by God and told to go, he sets his tent there at Bethel and he builds an altar to God. We also find Bethel in Genesis 28 and Genesis 35, for that's where Jacob met with God. Again, super significant location. Right? If you think about Beersheba, this is where Abraham had gone to reside after the Lord had spared Isaac. This is one of the many places that he resided. And these, these sites have historical significance to the nation of Israel. It's where they worshiped the Lord for so many years. But God sends a message through his prophet that sends a very different story about these sites of worship. He says, don't seek these places for they're going to go into exile, they will be destroyed, and they will come to nothing. See, the Lord's judgment is approaching these sites of worship. And so you may ask your question, why? If they were so significant to this nation, if they had worshipped God faithfully there for years and years and years, why would God destroy these sites? And the answer is because their worship had turned into sin. You see, when the northern and southern kingdom separated King Jeroboam, he built two new temples, like large, extravagant temples. And what did he do? He placed these golden calves in these temples for the people to worship. If you want more on that, go to 1 Kings chapter 12. It tells more of that story. So now here's the problem. The nation of Israel, though they had these sites of historical significance where they had worshipped for years, it had become sites of idolatry. Right? Instead of worshiping the one true living God, they're bowing before all of these created idols. So even the sacrifices that they did offer to God, Yahweh, they were displeasing to him. But they were living in sin. It had become about practice of rituals. It had basically become religion without relationship. It had become an obligation without any obedience. So the Lord says to to them, do not seek these places. In fact, don't seek me because I can't be found there. I've already abandoned them for destruction. You see, with God, it's never been about seeking places. It's never been about cities or sanctuaries or buildings. It's always been about pursuing and being satisfied in God. It's about pursuing him in righteousness. For the nation of Israel, they're Worship had become disingenuous and disengaged. It was a vain and empty worship. Their hearts were disconnected from God because they were so engulfed in their sin. And we'll talk about this more next week as we dig into the second half of Amos chapter 5. But I just want to say this. Listen, if our desire is to truly offer worship to God, a worship that is pleasing to him, that requires obedience. Worship of God is not simply about external practices. It matters how we approach him internally and externally. Appropriate worship requires having the right heart posture. And again, that begins with obedience. 
submitting to the Lord's commands. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but for the Lord, he looks upon the heart. Looks upon our hearts. The Lord examines the heart of every man. And for the house of Israel, their hearts were so far from God. They continued to live in sin, so even the worship that they offered him was just lip service. It meant nothing. Now, here's a place where we can all stop and make this uh, applicable, right? If you, is your worship of the Lord false? I want you to stop and think about that. Be honest with yourselves here. Maybe you come in here every Sunday morning, and you lift your hands, and you sing songs of praise to the Lord, and you fellowship with your brothers and sisters, and you read, and you pray, and you do all the things externally. Where's your heart, though? Are you obedient? Is your worship of the Lord legitimate? Or is your seeking a sham? Is it false? Is it disingenuous? How do you live Monday through Saturday? Are you obedient to God's commands? Are you living in unrepentant sin? Are you like the nation of Israel, turning to your own way and turning away from Creator God, are you practicing obedience? Is there unrepentant sin in your life and that's keeping you from approaching Creator God in the appropriate fashion? We almost take an ob- uh, honest inventory of our lives. So you can do all the stuff, you can do all the things, you can come here every week, every Sunday, you can be kind to others, you can read the word, etc., etc., etc. Brothers and sisters, before we offer our praises to the Lord, I would urge each of you, each of us, that includes me, to take a moment and examine our hearts, to look at our lives. Are we living in accordance to the word of God? And he's a God who demands holiness, who demands purity and obedience and righteousness. Anything less than that, if we're not living in accordance to that, we offer our praise to God, it's displeasing to him. Now, that's not, that doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want anyone to walk out of here and God doesn't demand perfection. Praise God, perfection was realized and completed in Christ Jesus on our behalf. Amen. But God's people don't make a practice of sin. There's a difference between sin and unrepentant sin. There's a difference between stumbling. There's a difference just continuing in darkness. Those are two very different things. So we must live in obedience. That should be understood as we move forward to chapter 6. Or excuse me, verse 6. Not chapter 6, not yet. Verse 6. God warns the house of Israel not to seek those places of worship. And as verse 6 begins, he again directs them instead to seek him so that they may live. It's said twice here. It kind of bookends this little section. He says it at the beginning of chapter, or verse 5, and the beginning of verse 6. This really highlights here in verse 6 what will happen to those that do not turn back to God. Verse 6 says this, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. So here we find that God has a plan. 
He has plans for redemption and restoration for those who seek after him, but he also has a plan for those who refuse to. Verse 6 says, seek the Lord for lest he will break out like fire in the house of Joseph. This is a devastating picture of God's wrath and judgment upon the northern kingdom, the house of Joseph. Those who had hardened their hearts and refused to turn to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched a fire spread, but it destroys everything it touches. It engulfs everything in its path quickly and completely. Fire is all-consuming. It's devastating. It's so painfully destructive. That's the picture that's used here for God's judgment, one of a fire that consumes everything in its way. And verse 6 says, this fire will devour with none to quench it. Now, earlier we saw that God's judgment is permanent. Here we are reminded that God's judgment is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. Once he's willed and ordained something, it shall come to pass. Isaiah 14, 7 says this, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? No one can steady the hand of the Lord. No one can turn it back. No one can stop this all-consuming fire. No amount of, of religious rituals. It doesn't matter the size or the elegance of the temple. They could have offered all the sacrifices they wanted day in, day out. This is not what God desired. He was calling them to repent. So apart from that, this all-consuming fire is coming to wreak havoc upon the nation of Israel, the judgment that they had heaped upon themselves. And as we look at verse 7, this really begins to address the heart of the matter. This is the reason God's anger burns against his people. It says, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. And this is a stinging rebuke of God's people. God doesn't mince words here. He is clear in the condemnation of their behavior, particularly the sin of injustice and the mistreatment of others. Listen, the ex expectation that God has for his people and holiness to walk uprightly even extends to our relationships with one another, both inside and outside the body of Christ. The way that we treat one another matters. That's what God is addressing here. Listen, there are no loopholes. There are no exit cl clauses. There are no ways to kind of shirk around that. That's what God calls us to. The way that we treat one another matters. He's demanded his people to act justly and to do what is right when we engage with one another. Get this. We are to show no partiality when dealing with others. But here the Lord says they have turned justice to wormwood. So what wormwood is, it's, it's a plant. It was an herb that was pretty easy to find. It grew a lot, had a lot of different purposes, even medicinal purposes. But it was so very bitter. So what God is saying here is they've turned justice to bitterness. This metaphor was in reference to the consistent unjust practices of God's people, specifically the court system that they had in place at that time, the way that they tried and determined the cases of the people. God said it had turned to bitterness. They turned justice to bitterness. The system that they had in place was instituted and designed to be a good thing, 
to be run by upright and righteous men, but instead the system was controlled by the wealthy and they continuously oppressed the poor. So what should have been this sweet practice of justice had become this really bitter and unpleasant experience in the sight of the Lord. It says they had taken justice, they had taken righteousness and cast it aside like rubbish. Again, this is the root of the issue. At the heart of Amos 5, this is what God is addressing. This is the sin that has drawn the ire of God. This is the reason his judgment is about to fall upon them. See, according to the prophet Amos, the central accusation levied against Israel deals with their lack of justice and righteousness, two attributes that should be commonplace amongst God's people. And we're going to come back to this in just a moment when we get to verses 10 and 13. We'll get a little bit more of the specifics there. But as we move forward to verses 8 and 9, there seems to be an, a bit of an abrupt, uh, an abrupt shift, like we're kind of switching gears here a little bit. We move away from our themes of judgment, repentance, and sin, and we're reminded in the middle of this discourse just who God is. And he is the almighty creator with all power in his hand. Verses 8 and 9 said this, He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. You see, though these verses feel like a bit of a a departure Essentially, they function as a bit of a climax. These verses underscore the power of God to both create and destroy. See, Pleiades, which is also mentioned in Job chapter 38, and Orion, which is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 13, these are pretty well-known constellations. They were thought by some to control even the change of the seasons. For Israel's neighbors, they worshipped these stars, But here the Lord is speaking through his prophet Amos, and he takes the opportunity to remind Israel of the nature of their one true living God. He is the creator of all things with all power in his hand. This is their God. See, verse 8 says that he turns deep darkness into morning. And this harkens us back to Genesis 1 and the creation narrative. There was nothing but void and darkness. And then God, by the word of his power, he speaks all of creation into existence. That's ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. God brings forth creation. He speaks, let there be light, and the darkness scatters. And the darkness scatters. It says he darkens the day into night. He brings light. He also brings darkness. This reminds us that God is sovereign over all things. He even orders our days and nights, our sunrises and our sunsets. God is holding it all together by his power. It says, he who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. This is not a reference to God bringing much needed precipitation to the land, although God does that too. We found that out last week in chapter 4, right? Pastor Tyler walked us through that. We understand that God is indeed sovereign over that. He sends the rain. He sends the precipitation. But that's not what this is a picture of here. This is almighty God summoning the power of the seas for the purpose of destruction. Think about Noah and the flood. 
and all that God did by the power of his hand. The devastation brought upon the face of the earth as God brings forth the devastating power of water. It says here in verse 8, the Lord is his name. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah, the all-powerful, unlimited creator. This is not some impotent, man-made idol made by human hands. This is the Lord God. Verse 9 says, he makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. You see, Israel viewed themselves as very strong. They assumed they were secure because of their defenses, because of their fortified cities and their strongholds. But those things made no difference to God. Israel didn't have the luxury of banking on their defenses against the Lord. He was set to flash forth destruction against them. You see, when God chooses to do so, he can and he will bring even the mightiest nation to ruin. It is but a very minimal task for the Lord to trample even the greatest nation under his feet. Very minimal task. Brothers and sisters, this is probably one of the easiest applications I'll ever make. Sometimes the application is simply to behold your God. Behold your God. Amos is calling the nation of Israel to look upon their God in all of his might, all of his power. And remember that they've aroused the ire of this God, a God like no other, God all by himself, one who is not to be trifled with. I think so many people forget who God is. Or maybe they've never got an accurate picture of who God is according to his word. God is not a joke. God is not a genie in the bottle. He's not some sky fairy. He's not a senile old grandfather. He's the almighty God of the universe, the creator of all things. He's either a great terror or a great comfort, depending on which side of his favor you are on. This is God. This is God. Verse 7 tells us that uh, it is because of the manipulating of justice that they provoked God's anger. But as we look at verses 10 through 13, we see God rendering judgment against his people for their specific sins. This verse details their injustices. Verses 10 through 13, it says this, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. See, verse 10 says that they hate him who reproves in the gate. When it talks about the gate, this is referring to the city gate, the entranceway into the city. And the gate was a large structure with several chambers, and at that time it served as a place to do business. It served as a place of protection. It was a place where justice was to be administered and where trade could be conducted. 
And what would happen is Israel would appoint certain elders to sit in this passageway of the gate, and they'd hear the legal cases of the people. And their purpose was to act as mediators or arbitrators to hear both sides of the case and render an, a fair and unbiased judgment. But you see here, God rebukes the nation of Israel for their corruption and their unrighteousness. He says they hate him who reproves. They abhor him who speaks the truth. So essentially, anyone that attempts to act justly within this system faces ridicule, persecution, and hatred. These people didn't desire justice and righteousness. They were simply seeking their desired outcome, whatever would benefit them the most. They'd strayed so far from the truth that they now even hated the truth and anyone that would speak truth. Pause. Is this not our culture today? Is that not what we are facing in 2021? See, those who tell the truth, specifically the truth of God's word, are hated and ridiculed, despised and dismissed. You're told the Bible is outdated. It's old-fashioned. It's unloving. It's uh, non-inclusive. It's just downright wrong, right? It's intolerant. We're told we can't trust it. That's what we face as those who proclaim God's truth. But let me tell you this. We must stand firm on the word of God. Amen. Right? We can't bow to the culture. We can't bow to the moment. We can't bow to our feelings. We must submit to the text, to the scriptures. Right? It's the truth of God's word that saves. It's what saves we must continue to preach and proclaim God's truth regardless of circumstance or opposition. See, Israel had fallen away from the truth. They hated those who proclaimed the truth, who would try to render right and just verdicts. God says that his people hated them. They reproved and despised those that told the truth. Verse 11 says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. Here God is indicting his people for their oppression and mistreatment of the poor. And I think it's important for us to note that although they took advantage of the poor and needy, the solution was not suddenly to favor the poor. They're not being called to show favoritism here. We must remember that as arbitrators, of, as mediators of this case, they are to be impartial. You see, showing partiality is the very thing that had provoked God's anger to begin with. This was their lack of justice. And if we're going to talk about justice, man, justice is a word that's thrown around a lot these days, isn't it? But it's often misunderstood. It's often misapplied, misused. Listen, justice is not loving, serving, and accommodating one group of people over another. There are those advocating now for social justice, standing against what they deem to be unjust systems that lead to inequitable outcomes. For many, the solution is a shift in, in the perceived balance of power, the reallocation, the ownership of assets, goods, and capital. And the goal is to elevate one group of individuals at the expense of another group of individuals. But when we talk about doing justice, we must define it God's way. It must be practiced according to his word. 
Consider Leviticus 19.15. This is what it says. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. God shows no partiality. And so those who bear his name, we must be impartial and unbiased in our dealings as well. I've heard so many individuals twist and misapply and misconstrue these verses. We cannot thrust our own contextual presuppositions onto the text. We must make it say what it says. We can't read it from our own perspective. The text says what it says. We must read this text and interpret it accurately. Then we must apply it accordingly. Brothers and sisters, we have to see this for what it is. This is primarily a call to repentance, not reform call to repentance, not to reform. I want you to think about the corruption of Israel's court system, right? There's nothing inherently sinful or wrong about the system they had in place. They have several men that are to conduct themselves righteously, justly, fairly. They sit, they hear these cases, and then they render an unbiased judgment. They're supposed to do that with great integrity. So the problem isn't the system that's in place. It was the individuals that failed to act justly. See, the issue is the same as it's always been. Men love the darkness. It is the sinful condition of mankind. That is what God is addressing here. And he is calling them to repent and turn back to him. And as, this, and, and as we talk about this, this begins on an individual level. Pause. This is where every man and woman must be introspective. We must do some soul searching. We must ask ourselves, am I dealing justly with my neighbor? Am I dealing justly with my coworkers, my employees? In my business dealings, am I treating people fairly? Am I participating in the sin of impartiality in any way? Am I favoring one group of people over another, whether it be the poor or the wealthy? And again, we must take an honest inventory of our hearts and our lives. And if you do, and that reveals sin there, I challenge you to repent. And to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient in addressing and transforming all of these areas of our hearts and lives. The gospel is the power to save. Amen? Amen. See, verse 11 says, You trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. So they were oppressing the poor and they were uh, enforcing these unreasonable taxes. And what would happen is, is people would have to give up their land and then they would have to work the land in order to work off the debt that they had owed. And then they would have to give up most of the crops that they uh, raised in order to pay off this debt. So it was just continually oppressing them. They were continued to be stuck in the situation that they were in. And it says that there were so many within the nation that had received wealth 
and they had come to a position of prosperity and power at the oppression of the poor. They had, by unjust means, received all of these wonderful things, these houses of hewn stone, these great and glorious and grand vineyards, right? But God says you won't get to enjoy them. God says you won't reap the benefits of your labor, these luxurious dwelling places, these bountiful, bountiful and abundant vineyards. He says you won't get to enjoy them. I know you've gained them by unjust means. God declares, I will bring judgment on you before you can enjoy these things because of your continuous transgressions. Verse 12 says this, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy. See, God says, I know. He sees their sin. Every single one of them, past, present, and future, God is well aware. The reality is he knows our sins too. There's nothing hidden from God. But praise God that in Christ Jesus we can fling ourselves upon his mercies. Though we've sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, as those in Christ Jesus we do not stand condemned. The Lord here says to his people, they afflict the righteous, they take bribes. And in this verse, in this context, the righteous is simply those who should be on the right side of justice, right? Those who should uh, have the verdict rendered in their favor because they're being honest as they come forward in their court cases. But it says they hate the righteous and afflict them, that they take bribes. So these men begin to take bribes, which would lead them to turn aside the needy, to ignore and neglect the poor, those with the greatest needs. In the most desperate situations would be dismissed and rejected, all in order of the name, all in the name of wealth, all to keep the rich rich and continue to oppress the poor. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to turn justice to wormwood. And this is why the swift, permanent, and unstoppable judgment of the Lord is aimed at the nation of Israel. Verse 13, the prophet tells the prudent to keep silent for it is an evil time. And from reading a couple different commentaries, there's a couple different opinions about what this verse actually means. Some think that this is uh, God saying that the person who is wise will silently listen to the words of this prophecy they will heed the word of God. They will turn from their sin. They'll withdraw from this wicked and evil society, and they'll pursue the Lord, fleeing his judgment. Others believe this is a call for silent lamentation, a call to silently wail and mourn and weep this inner turmoil for what is about to transpire amongst that nation. Either way, the sentiment is the same. The nation of Israel, those hearing the words of the prophet Amos would be wise to be silent, to pay attention, to stop what they're doing, turn from their sin, and turn to the Lord. The Lord in his grace and his divine providence is giving Israel the opportunity to repent and be saved. And we'll look at verses 14 and 15, God's final call to repentance to his people. And this is what it says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate 
And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. See, for those that may have been confused about what it means to seek God, the Lord makes it plain here. He says, seek good, not evil. That is what repentance looks like for the nation of Israel, that they hate evil and love good. That is how one truly worships God. It's through obedience and faithfulness. Obedience to his command. It's living in accordance to the word of God. And the command is to seek him so that the God of hosts will be with you as you have said. This is important as this should be one of the key convictions for Amos's audience. Their belief that they had God's saving presence. They assumed that the Lord dwelled with them continuously. I mean, he had guided them out of slavery through the exodus. He had provided for them in the wilderness, had brought them to the promised land. He delivered them over and over and over again. But the prophet argues that their sins had severed their relationship with God. Their worship had been polluted, and no matter the amount of religious rituals or offerings, God was not amongst those people, at least not in a way to bless them. They assumed on something that wasn't actually true. There's a question for each of us today. Are you assuming on a relationship that isn't accurate? You're assuming to be under the saving grace of God provided to you in Jesus Christ? Or has your relationship with God been severed? Or maybe it's never been established at all. Are you presuming on something that is not present? Verse 15 says, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. You see, the only way for them to reestablish what they falsely believed to possess was through repentance by seeking the Lord and turning to a life of justice and righteousness. And God would be gracious to those that do. He's inviting them to turn to him, to be saved, to find grace. And guess what? He is inviting us the same way through his son, Jesus Christ, to turn to God. And when we do, we find that the Lord is gracious. I don't want you to miss what happens here at the end of verse 15. We'll prepare to close our time. As we close verse 15, we are reminded that salvation will not be afforded to all. Right? But only a remnant of the house of Joseph will be saved. The reality is true today. Not everyone will be found in Christ on the day of judgment. Not all will be saved. In fact, Jesus says the way is narrow and few will ever find it. Not everyone will fall under God's saving grace. It's only extended to a portion of individuals, those who repent, those who return, those who believe. See, throughout this chapter, God condemns his people for their sins, and he warns them of the judgment that is to come. But he invites them to return and flee the wrath that is coming. And as we end our time here together this morning, the challenge, the exhortation before us is to look at these texts accordingly and see what do they mean for our own lives? What are these texts saying to us? I love how Daryl Harrison describes the Bible he says, it is first a mirror for us to see ourselves in the appropriate way. So when we're faced with the truth of God's word, what we discussed here this morning, we must render a verdict. We must be moved to some sort of response. 
The challenge is to look at yourself in relation to these themes, these truths, the things that we've discussed this morning and determine what is God asking of me? So I want to leave you with just a couple of questions as we finish here this morning. A couple of questions to reflect upon, things to honestly ask ourselves. Do you claim to bear the name of Christ but continue to live in sin? Are you making a practice of unrighteousness? Do you continue to present your offering to God? Maybe, again, it's coming in here every Sunday morning. You think, man, I'm here every Sunday. I give my tithe. I'm, I'm, I'm a really nice person. And I let everyone else have the better parking spots. I do all these things. Amen. I do all of these things. Right? I'm here all the time but you still have unrepentant sin in your life. Again, maybe you're presuming or assuming on a relationship that isn't there. Is the Lord calling you to repent of specific sins and turn to him this morning? Again, are you presuming on the presence of God simply because of maybe a past profession of faith? Maybe one that's never been true, one that's never been genuine, never been present. Ask yourself, are you truly seeking God through faithful obedience. You see, as we remember the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 28, the Lord gives the great commission and he challenges us to go into the world and make disciples. But how can you teach others to observe all that he's commanded when you yourself are not observing all that he's commanded? So maybe you're in here this morning and you're struggling with these questions. Maybe this has landed really hard and really heavy for you this morning. Well, God's word provides us with confidence and peace. And it so wonderfully reminds us that when we turn to him, we find compassion, not condemnation. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What a glorious truth that is. God's grace. See, although the Lord is right to render us all guilty because of our sin, those of us who turn to Christ and humbly seek the Lord, we find his saving grace. We find abundant pardon. And all of that culminates or climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when the Lord says, seek me and live, that reminds us that apart from him, there is no life. He says, seek me and live. Apart from God, there is no life. I don't care how good you feel. I don't care how successful you are. Apart from God, there is no true and lasting and abundant life. You see, the only means of life and escape for the Israelites was turning to God. And the only means of life for us is turning to Christ. You're not living if you do not have life in Jesus. So my encouragement to you this morning, whether you're a believer in this room or an unbeliever, is to look to Christ. For he is our only means of salvation and deliverance. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this opportunity that we've had to gather together this morning. God, we're thankful for the truth of the text. God, though it may cut us to the core, it may pierce our hearts, God, we deem that to be a good thing, a good and glorious thing. Father, I ask that uh, by the teaching of your word, with the time that we've had together this morning, that we would each be challenged to look at our own lives, to come face to face with our sin, our shortcomings, but to be also not just challenged, but reminded of the freedom and the grace and the life that is available in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for all those who are gathered here together this morning, those who may not know you, those who may be still under your wrath, may have the judgment of God continuously aimed at them. God, I pray that something would have been said or done that would draw them to repentance. God, that your spirit would be at work in their hearts today, quickening them to turn from their sin and turn to you. Father, we trust you for you are almighty. You are all powerful as the text reminded us. You are glorious, the great creator of all things. So God, help us with the time that we have remaining to continue to glorify and honor the name of Jesus. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen.